Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello from me, Richard Heller. It's a cold, sharp day here in south-east London, where once again the winter sun is glaring through the thinning trees. Unfortunately, Peter... Uh, has to be away from us again, but we're very glad, as usual, to be joined by our distinguished friend and colleague, Roger Alton, from the Pavilion End. Um, hi, it's Roger here. I'm uh, in South London. It's uh, very nice and warm and bright, and um, I'm very much looking forward to this uh, podcast. Indeed. Well, we've got a lot to look forward to, haven't we, Roger? Those of us who watched um, BBC Television's coverage of um, of cricket in the 1970s will be very familiar with our our guest today. Wendy, you are best known as the BBC television scorer. You've also, um, but you've also served cricket in in many other ways, in many other places, uh, which we'll hear about. So it's um, a special joy to welcome a scorer onto uh, the podcast for the first time. How did you start, Wendy? Well, my father was a clergyman here in Whitstable and um there were enough men and boys to start a cricket team, so he decided to do just that. And I was about 11, 12, and I was good at sums and maths generally. And he said to me, you can be the scorer. <laughs> and he gave me the famous book by Diana Rate Carr, How to Score, uh-huh. which was sort of double Dutch, rather like when you buy anything nowadays, you get the instructions in about 50 languages. And then you'd realise it just means switch on A, B and C and, and away you go. Well, I was very fortunate that the other team that we played against in that first game, of course, being 11 or 12, I thought he was an old man. He was probably only about 40. <laughs> but he showed me what to do, and um, I was hooked from that moment on. What was it that made you so captivated by it? Well, probably, to be fair, to start with, the maths, because um, yeah. the batting bit has to add up to the bowling side. And if it doesn't, you're in a bit of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I had all pre prior to that I had been a avid collector of railway steam train numbers. Yeah, so numbers has always played a big part of my life. Did you ever find yourself slipping an extra one or two into a bowling analysis because the figures didn't quite add up, or were you always perfect? Certainly not. I was always perfect. <laughs> but that, that's because you you have to have great powers of concentration. You certainly do, and um, all the matches that Roger and I play in, there's a regular sort of balancing item um, thrown in, as they used to have to do for the balance of payments in the um, in the 60s and 70s. Well, this is because most people don't want to be the scorer. You know, if you ask most cricketers, they kind of oh, they kind of shudder. And people used to say to me, I remember Harry Pilling saying to me, I don't know how you can sit there for hours doing all that dotting and dashing. He, he said, I just couldn't do it. They prefer to play. Well, it's certainly an unenviable job keeping... Um, it's, a, it's a hard enough, uh, at Roger's level of mind, to concentrate on a you know, 30, 35 hour, over game, um, let alone a, a three-day one or a um, or five-day test match. Um, Wendy, how did you... Um, you started at 11. Was there a sort of career progression for you from that point onwards? Did... Um, well, no, no, I don't think... You see, the thing was, I, I was actually doing my job before I knew it existed. In as much as I would go and watch the cricket at Canterbury and score in a book on my lap, and people around about me would say, how many fours have you got, or how many this? 
and the overs as Underwood bowled, and I would tell them I was doing the job I never knew existed. <laughs> and then one day I was doing it for real. How did that happen when you were doing it at Whitstable, or are you talking about subsequently? No, subsequently. Um, in addition to um, watching the cricket, I kept a scrapbook of Kent's doings in particular, and England as well. And so I was... In 1972, I went to Lords to watch Australians play Middlesex, and it poured with rain. So the first, certainly the first three quarters of the first day, there was no play. So I just carried on doing my usual thing of cutting up the Daily Telegraph and sticking bits in the right places. And um, yeah. I was spotted by Bill Frindle, who, <laughs> who looked out of their commentary box window and saw this woman cutting up the newspaper. And, and he thought, what earth is she doing? And then he realised it was the cricket pages. So he came down to talk to me, say, you know, what are you doing? And I told him. And he said, would you like to come up to the commentary box? And so I went up there. And um, I scored then at Lords a few weeks later. The first match I ever did for the BBC was the Village Cup final hmm. uh, at Lords. And, of course, I mean, well, extraordinary. I mean, there you are, scoring a game, two teams. You don't know anybody in either side. It was really quite peculiar. Yeah. That, that was a start. And then they asked me, because in those days on Saturday, I forget what the programme was called, Saturday afternoon. They, was that big grandstand? Was that still it, grandstand? Well, no, this was on, I think this, they dipped in and out of matches all over the place. So mm. if, if you were playing another two or three days and washed out, you, you did quite long stretches of commentary for them. And it just kind of, it was a hobby that got out of hand. Well, it was a... Very lucky signing for the BBC, I must say. Um, when they, so that would have been, so you say, in the, in the early 70s? In the early 70s, yes. And then I also had a stroke of luck. I came down, I lived in North London. I came down one morning and on the doormat was all the post and there was an airmail letter upside down. In a, so you couldn't see the address. I mean, who the addressee, I should say. And there were five or six of us lived in the house. And so I just thought, well, that won't be for me because I don't know anybody who lives abroad, you see. But I stooped down and picked all the letters up, turned it over, and it was addressed to me. And it was from Jim Swanton, the cricket correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, who was in Barbados at the time because he had a house there, and asking me if I'd like to work for him. Jim Swanton, the mm. emperor and the doyen of commentators. Yes, he gave, he gave also the, um, didn't he, the... Close place summary. Um, yeah, the close place summary. Yes, and um, there was a memorable time, wasn't there? When the I think there was a, a sort of minor fire in the um, uh, in the in the in a commentary box, and um, white smoke came out, and somebody said, "Oh, they've <laughs> uh, they've chosen Jim Swanton as Pope." That was the That's, sort of yeah, um, exactly right. He was a controversial figure, though, Wendy, wasn't he? He wasn't. Um, you know, people had their well, yes, but people who said that sort of thing had most often, never even met him, never mind work. You know, people had this idea of him. I mean, you imagine a big man like Jim had been a prisoner of war in Japan, in Shanghai, came back weighing just over six stone. Yeah. And he was a big man. He was six foot three or four. And um, I think a lot of people just misunderstood. He, he had this, and his bearing, you know, the military bearing, because he was a, had been in the army and, and um, to quite a high rank. And... I think people misunderstood and, and thought he was pompous, but he wasn't really. He was fascinating. Act, he was actually quite mm. shy. And I think probably a lot of shy people, they do put on that kind of protective air, don't they? What did you do for him, Wendy? I was his amanuensis. 
<laughs> Greek for handmaiden, but it's, it, it only went so far. I, I did all his correspondence. I typed books for him. I did research for him. I kept notes at the cricket. And if he had to leave the, the press box or uh, to go away, then he'd come back and we'd compare notes. And there was one very famous occasion, Maidstone. Um, there were two players, Bob Woolmer and Graham Johnson, who looked very alike, and they had sort of beetle haircuts in those days. <laughs> and they took a catch right in front of the pavilion at Maidstone. And I wrote down which one I thought it was. And Jim came back eventually and said, are you sure it was, say it was Graham Johnson? I said, yes, Mr. Swan. And I thought, well, I'm not going to change my mind because then he'll think I'm, you know, weak and feeble to sort of uh, say, so I'm going to check with the scorers. And when he came back, he said to me, now, who do you say it was? And I said, Graham Johnson, Mr. Swan. I, by the way, I never called him Jim, not even Mr. years Swan. and years. Mr. Swan. Mm -hmm. Um Although he did eventually say I could call him Jim, but it didn't seem right somehow. Um, <laughs> and so I said, Graham Johnson, I thought, I'm not going to change my mind. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And he said, you were quite right, my dear. And well done for sticking to your <laughs> original idea. Did you go abroad with him, Wendy, at all? No, because a a actually speaking, I worked with him. The 1974 was the last year that he worked on the cricket circuit. But uh -huh. then I worked him up. I worked him for about twenty years altogether, typing letters and, and as I say, books. And um, so no, I didn't. But we travelled quite often in his beautiful Jaguar car, which was rather nice. <laughs> Sounds lovely. <laughs> I I was very very fond of him. I can he, tell. He, yeah. He lived in Sandwich, so he's from Whitstable. I went along to Ramsgate in the train. Although I lived in London, my mother still lived here, where I'm talking to you now. So on a Monday, I would go straight to Sandwich and then I would go to and from Whitstable for the rest of the week and go back to London on Friday afternoon. That's how we, we did it. And then we travelled here, then everywhere. Fantastic. Wonderful. Wendy, just a general question. When you began your career, the world of cricket was very male-dominated, wasn't it? Did you ever encounter? <laughs> <laughs> did, did you ever encounter any sort of... Well, any sort of difficulties on that part? Did you have to break through any sort of grass ceiling in any of, any of your roles? No, you see, because I, I think, but because I worked with Jim, I think people realised I was serious about cricket, number one. I was also older than, than possibly, you see, 19, I was born in 1940, so when I started, I was already in, in my 30s and not sort of a bright young thing. I discovered quite early that there was a sweepstake on whose room I'd be seen coming out of. That's a, <laughs> but I mean, things people complained about nowadays were just de rigueur mm. in those days. I remember sitting at um, a sort of meeting. We used to have a meeting on the night before the test match to sort of sort of go through what might happen and who was going to be doing what. And, and some famous former cricketers kept holding my right leg <laughs> through the entire thing. Well. I couldn't get out of it, obviously, because it was a round table and we were all squashed round there. Mm. So I couldn't really do anything much. Um, I hope you gave him what for, Wendy? Uh, I never gave him anything. <laughs> <It's unlucky. laughs> yeah. What a pain, Wendy. Who are the people you really love to like? Um, in descending order? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. In descending order, yes. Descending order. The uh, well, the joint top would be Richie... Benno, Ted Dexter, and Tom Gravney. Hmm. Over, 
a handy trio, I think you'll agree. That's a good trio. Very, very, very high up every, a lot of people's lists, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I worked for Ted Dexter after I'd worked for Jim. Um, because, oh, I was saying before, because I had been in the press box, when, when Jim retired, the press wanted me to carry on scoring and giving them information, you see. So they used to pass this brown paper envelope around and they'd all put two or three pound notes or whatever in and give it to me at the end. And it was enough to sort of pay my hotel room as a rule. It wouldn't do nowadays, but it <laughs> did in those days. And so, and then I started to work at Lords in the National Cricket Association. I worked for the um, chief executive of that and did all the minutes and things of all the meetings that were taking place of all the different committees and then organised the AGM and all that kind of thing. The National Cricket Association was kind of the the grassroots arm of, of Lords, wasn't it? It was, yes. Hmm. Yeah, individual little clubs. And I'm not sure if it still exists or not. I, I, I'm not too certain. I think it's probably been subsumed in something else now. I think it was subsumed in the TCCB at one point and then it was swallowed, now it's swallowed up into the ECB, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. I dare say, yes. yes. Tell, tell us about Richie, Wendy. Tell us about Richie Benno. I, I was very fond of Richie, and it, it, um, it's hard to say, really, because he, he was really a very quiet chap. But you can tell, you see, when you listen to Richie doing comedy, then he, he obviously keeping his eye on the picture, but he doesn't talk unless it's absolutely necessary. And I wish a lot of modern-day people would take note of that. It's not always necessary to chatter away while people can see what's going on. Your job is to sort of enhance it. And you'd hear him sort of say, well, I think I think what be, would be a good idea were to bring a third slip up or, or send, send. And the next thing you'd see, lo and behold, the captain on the field doing exactly that. So I learned a great deal about the, the kind of tactics and um, mm. that kind of thing from him. I bet, yeah. Also, his wife, Daphne, had worked for Jim Swanton, not the immediate one, but the one before the one that I took over from. She'd worked for Jim and that mm. was, in fact, how she met Richie, because she met him when she was working at Lord's, and that's how she met Richie in the first place. She came from uh, Glossop in Derbyshire. Oh, really? What was Ted like, um, uh, Wendy? I mean, he was a great hero of mine when I was growing up. I must say, he was wonderful. Ted Dexter? Yeah. Yeah, the most remarkable man you're ever likely to meet. Um, it's hard to make people understand, but something that Ted is involved in today it's something he already finalised and worked out how to do about six weeks ago. What he's speaking of today is what he'd be doing in six weeks' time. Yeah. He was always kind of... And then he'd arrive and he'd be uh, at the house in Ealing and there he'd be with a rolled-up newspaper practising some golf shot. Or oh, Richie suggested this and this. And then he, he had a retired greyhound. He was very interested in that. In fact, he won the greyhound derby one year. <laughs> Um, but he mostly had retired greyhounds, as, as, just as house pet, you know. Mm. And and then the flying, and um, I did fly with him. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, not all the not all the way to Australia. I no, hope, no, 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 thankfully not. Because <laughs> he once um, did. No, um, uh, he was working. There was a sponsorship for Commercial Union Assurance, and um, they were having a game at Canterbury. So he decided, living in Ealing, his plane was at Denham in Buckinghamshire. So we, instead of going to Victoria and catching the train to Canterbury, which sensible people do, no, we go north from Ealing to Denham, fly to Ramsgate, 
and then take a taxi from Ramsgate to Canterbury and do the same thing in reverse. But it was very, very <laughs> exciting because, of course, we flew over Whitstable. Yeah. It was amazing to see where you live from the air. It's just fantastic. Yeah, more fun than getting around now. And then, and then we yeah. landed at Ramsgate, which in those days, was uh, Manston was controlled by the RAF. And they, this little six-seater plane, they put all the landing lights on. <laughs> it's one of the longest runways in the country. And they put all the landing lights on for us to do this textbook. And I'm just thinking, oh, please, let's have a textbook landing you know, here. Here we are. And it was perfect. He showed me how to do it. He said, you, you must learn how to do it in case something happens to me when we're in the air. And I'm thinking, no, I don't really like that. But anyway, it's quite, you know, you, you have a little picture of the plane and you can see if it's wobbling or not. You just hold the, whatever it's called, the, the joystick or whatever it's called. And you, you can sort of, you can see if you're flying in a level thing or not. And he said, don't worry, he said, because if you had to land, people would help you do it. <laughs> like, tell, you know, t tell you how to. And it, also he had a mo big motorbike, which I wasn't quite so keen on, but... <laughs> It was good fun. He had a lovely collection of cars as well, which he was just remarkable. You just never knew. No two days were the same. He, he was a fantastic chap. Hmm. Peter and I were very lucky uh, on the podcast to do one of the last interviews with him that he yeah. ever gave. Um, was... And he was, it was a wonderful experience. And as you say, yeah. Wendy, he was an gave an idea of what a multi-dimensional person exactly. he was. He used to have a nightmare, you know, um, because he, he batted number three for England, and he used to dream that he was in the nets at Lords, which are on the opposite side of the ground from the pavilion, as you probably know. And the the opening bats, one of the opening bats went out first ball, and he's thinking, "Oh my God, I'm supposed to be coming down the pavilion steps." And he <laughs> runs and tries to come under the grandstand with all these people get. Uh, and then when he gets to the pavilion gate, because he's been in in the um in the nets, he's not got a tie or anything on, and the chap won't let him in. <laughs> <laughs> And although he's there in his white, and you know, a pretty famous figure after all, Ted Dexter, with his cricket bat in his hand, and, and he's going to the steward, I, I, I needed, you know, the first batsman is out. <laughs> and he used to dream that apparently quite often before Testament. <laughs> well, the stewards at Lord in those days were so officious, I can't tell you. They, were, <laughs> they really were officious. When I worked at Lord's, you had to go up, um, you weren't allowed to go through the long room or the the restaurant, which is behind the long, we had to go up the stairs and right to the top and go along the top corridor so the members of the public wouldn't see you and then down the other side to your office. It was quite, quite dreadful in those days. Yes, I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, you know, for instance, I was doing this one day and some people, there were some members there and they were going, oh, a woman in the pavilion said to one chap. And then I, I just showed him my, my lanyard thing and he goes, and then it's changed complete. Oh, Wendy, where she goes? Oh, we've had marred your work for so long. It's a pleasure to meet you. And I'm thinking, you stupid old chap. Just now you were saying a woman in the room. <laughs> you know, like, Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wendy, um, you began uh, as a scoring statistician the days before laptop computers. Um, was it much harder to retrieve information and statistics on demand and uh, even just even keep track of the, the score in those days than it, than it is now when they uh, scorers seem to supply statistics absolutely, ins you know, uh, to insatiable d demands? Yeah. Some of them are completely worthless as well. When it's the 17th time, you think to have no, it's, that's, if it's the first time or, you know, it's a record. But when it's the eighth 
the eighth or ninth time so-and-so's done this. That's 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 sort of trying to big note yourself. No, I mean the thing is, if there's a test match, say at Trent Bridge, right? So before you go, you have everything to do with Trent Bridge. And and these were typed out um again because it's before the days of computers. Mm. And it was made into a press pack for the journalists, but used used in the comedy box as well. So you've got all the high scores, you've got the partnerships at Trent Bridge, you've got the pair. So so if 118, but if nobody scores 100 in the first thing, you can forget all of that. You can forget it. If if nobody gets a duck in the first thing, you can forget because there's not going to be a pair, is there? <laughs> and all this, so, and you've got the best bowling, and you've got the, so all, all of these things, you're ready for Trent Bridge. You're ready for England being New Zealand, for instance. Do you see what I mean? You, yes, indeed, yeah. You go ready mm. with this stuff all there, which was also my duty to supply it to the people who did the captions because, of course, they were doing the captions mm. before the days of computer as well. Of and um, yep. it's just a question of preparedness and knowing where to put your hand on it. You took all the books with all the scores of all the test matches in, and it was just a question of being able to put your thumb on it as quickly as possible. It was preparation was the key thing. I'm sure you weren't stumped very often, Wendy, but did you, in fact, ever get stumped on with a request for information? And did it ever happen live on air? I can't remember such a thing happening, I must admit. Hmm. Um, but it's some of it's quite a long time ago, so it could well have, but I don't think I did. I also hmm. had um, cards for each player, which as soon as they came in were put, I had a little rack where four of them could be, with the two bowlers and the two batsmen, so the commentator could pick this up and, and see all the information he's played, so many tests, his averages, his hundreds of that. And that kind of thing, and what he, and then at the bottom was a space for what he's done in the last few games. And so the commentator had those. That, and as soon as it was out, he gave it to me, and the next man in, he, he was given his car. And then they had to be updated, obviously, at the end of each thing. How were you updating, uh, Wendy, via computer or via? Just... Yeah, of course, computers hardly existed in those days. That's what I thought. Yeah. No, it's all. Um, they were just the right. size of post postcard, large. Bit larger right. than a postcard, yeah. And it was the career of each player, so they had four in front, four cards on the rack in front of them, the two batsmen and the two bowlers. Yeah, Wendy, you um, worked in Australia as well as um, as well as England. I think you've worked in in just about every Test playing country. But um, tell us how you came to work in in Australia. Well, nineteen eighty one Australia, we had there were six Test matches, and the BBC scorer was a gentleman called Irving Rosenwater mm. and he went to work when Kerry Packer started his operation in 1977. He persuaded Irving to go with, with him and Irving sort of came and went for two or three years and then I think I'm right in saying that he, he got into a bit of difficulty with HMRC mm. and so um, Kerry Packer <laughs> decided mm. he would pay for Irving to stay in Australia. And so that meant that the job was vacant. And so Michael Fordham, who was at the time the editor of the Playfair Cricket Annual, which I think still exists, mm. um, it was decided I was already doing the Sunday league scoring on the Sunday afternoons that Michael would score three games and I would score three games and then they would decide which of us would be given the job permanently. And I got the job. Uh, and then at Lords, I was... Lords was one of the, my three games. Um, 
Bobby Simpson was part of the commentary team just for that one game only and working with him. And he said to me that the ABC was starting up again in, in Australia because when Kerry Packer started up his organisation, he persuaded the Australian cricket board that he could broadcast a televised over the whole of Australia, which basically wasn't true. Because in those days, before we've got satellites and what have you, you could only broadcast about 60 or 70 miles from, you know, say in Brisbane, like a circle from Brisbane. Or if you drew a circle on the map, that would be the people inside that range would, would have it. Now, the ABC, the Australian board, which is like the BBC here, had booster stations all over because, of course, country areas are very important to the, to the ABC but they weren't allowed to televise. And it took them five years. And eventually in the High Court, they won the case to, to start televising again, the cricket. And so Bobby said to me, why don't you come and work with us on the test matches? And I thought, well, surely there must be somebody in Australia. And he said, oh, they would, you know, they'd sort of chop off their right arm if you would come. I said, well, they, you know, <laughs> they don't know me for that. And he said, oh, don't you believe it? He said, we get the BBC highlights programmes. So everybody in Australia knows your name. And if you would come, you know, they'd be thrilled to pieces. So I thought, okay. I, I, I in the end, went 11 years in a row. Obviously, the first year I went, I never expected it to be, you know, going on for so long. But, um, yeah, 11 years I went to Australia. How terrific. Wonderful. During the English winter. So you were... Oh, yeah, was, was, I, I had about yeah. 23 and the first winter I was here, I nearly died <laughs> because, especially in Whitson, we get this northeast wind coming in off the North Sea, and I, I had virtually no winter clothes to speak of either, obviously. So, I thought I would perish, but here I am, eighty-two next week, still going strong. Well, I certainly sound like it, Wendy. Can we just go back for a minute to Kerry Packer because I think you had a something of a sort of ringside seat um, <laughs> on the formation of uh, on, on Kerry Packer's plans, didn't you? Well... Or sort of inside look at them. I think the thing is that um, in that summer, everybody knew something was going on. In the cricket, we knew something was going on, but we didn't know. The Australia came... It, it wasn't really in, Australia, in the Australian, you know, the four-year cycle for them to be there, but I think it was because of the Jubilee or something, like that. they were, they were in, in England anyway in mm. 1977. And... In the press box, we knew something was going on, and no one because you would walk along the corridor and you'd see two or three people talk. And as soon as anybody got near, they just sort of stopped, like froze. And then you'd go around the corner, and then you could hear them start up again. So, and then you'd see this person with that. You know, that's a funny thing, never seen so and so talk. And we all knew something was going on, but we didn't know what it was. So, we went down to Hove on the Friday afternoon, he was going to play Sussex the next morning. And um, Tony Gregg had a party at his house. And it, I, I wasn't invited to the party, but in some strange way, it somehow at this party leaked out of what the, you know, this is what's been going on all summer, is the machinations for this sort of rebel setup. And it, it got somehow leaked at, at his party. I, I I was in London and expected to go to Sussex first thing in the morning. And I got up early and at six o'clock news, it was the first thing on there, more or less. And I thought, oh my Lord. I was doing all the typing for the Australian team manager. 
a man called Len Malik, a, a former wicketkeeper, Australian wicketkeeper. Yeah. And um, I, I realised, oh my lord, you know, the balloon's gone up. So I rang him straight away at sort of five past six and said, I'm on my way. You know, I'll be on the seven o'clock train. I'll be there by so half past straight, I'll be with you. And it was just pandemonium from then on. Um, wherever we went, there were, you'd hear these messages would Mr. Ian Chapel do this? Would Mr. Turner go to the, come to the, it was just absolute pandemonium. And there were four players who weren't involved. Mm-hmm. And they really got treated quite poorly, I'm sorry to say, by some of the other people. But they, they uh, I mean, including most notably, of course, was Kim Hughes, who should have played in the Nottingham Test match, but was left out. And um, mm-hmm. then eventually became Australian captain himself and was quite badly treated by some of the people who had played for Packer. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's another story. He was very badly treated, Kim Hughes, wasn't he? Did you like him? I mean, I was there. I, I was very fond of him. I was, I was there when, at, at the press conference when he was he was re- actually reduced to tears. And then, of mm. course, that only made things worse, of course, because people then yeah. mocked him for crying, you see. So, yeah. Like he'd yeah. got no spine and stuff like this. No, I, I mean, well, when he scored this 100 at Trent Bridge, and uh, hit, hit a window of the pavilion, <laughs> the Cyril Low Water Pavilion, yes, I know. Um, Len gave me some money and said, take him out for dinner because mm. he's been told he's not going to play and he's in a, you know, he's really very upset because obviously you'd imagine if you score a hundred in a game before a test match, your chances of playing are pretty high, aren't they? You'd imagine anyway. So, uh, and Jeff Thompson was another one who was uh, left out, but eventually did, did join Packer, but the first year he didn't. Did you like Thompson and Lily? <laughs> I was very fond of both of them, um, yeah. and, and Rodney Marsh was a scallywag. But he, yeah. he said to me, he, he said to me one day, "Do you know why we like you?" And I said, "No." He said, "Because you know where the bodies are buried, but you've never said a word." <laughs> because they, I mean, they, they were. I mean, I'm at a hotel in Leeds in the countryside. It was built on the side of a hill, and I looked out one night, and there were all these flashing lights, and they were on a, a bunny hunt. Because apparently, if you go shining a torch with rabbit will sit bolt upright and just not move like it's absolutely frozen and then you just can shine the light on its eyes apparently but uh, things like that um but dennis lily knocked me out one day (laughs) how did he do that well it it was in a comedy box at lords um and he he was demonstrating something to do with fast bowling you see and as i came through but and it was almost time for the innings to begin so i I, I was sort of hurrying back from the loo or whatever. And as I got by the door, I saw him, he was there with his arm high up in the air like this, holding a cricket ball. And I thought, well, if I, I'll just duck under there and get to my seat. When woof, the arm came down, I'm lying on the ground and all I could hear is Rodney Marsh saying, you've killed her. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of managed to say, no, I'm, you know, I'm all right, I'm all right. But poor old Dennis, I think he, he did think he'd, don't mean a blow. Well, you're a distinguished company, Wendy. People who've been hit by Dennis Lilly. Well, yeah. as far as I know, it's done no lasting damage. I mean, it's probably 40 years ago. Unlike, other, unlike others, I should think. Um, yeah. Wendy, I also have a note to say you were quite very close to Ian Chappell and had a very high regard for him. So, I did, right? yeah, I did. Because one of the things that Ian Chappell did was he really looked after his former players. If any of his former players fell on hard times or 
and he, he was he was he was right there and um he, his daughter worked with us for one year i think she was doing sort of you know like a work experience kind of thing she was helping the captures when she was being pestered by some chap and i rang ian and told him about this and of course it was quite a tricky thing for me to do because if the person concer concerned had found out it was me you know i could have lost my own job I, well that's how i felt anyway because this, the person who was doing the pesting was quite high up in the thing and, and you know, would have had no qualms about dispatching anybody who got in his way, basically. So I did tell Ian about that because I thought his daughter, his daughter, you know, she, she was only, what, 19, 18, 19, and she probably would have been scared herself, thinking, you know, if I complain about this fellow, I'll lose her own internship, you see. So I I did that. But I I, I had great regard for him in, in, in the way he looked after his former players. What did Ian Chappell do about that? The fascinating story. Um, I think he had what's known in in the trade as a quiet <laughs> word in your ear, <laughs> uh, and it I think it ceased. Put it that way. Yeah, it was quite a master of quiet, quite a master of words. Not always quiet, it wasn't he in in chapel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny enough, we had a we had a very uh, eloquent tribute to him actually only last week, which you'll hear in the coming edition from from Mike Coward of. Uh, Australian. Oh, my God, yes. Yes, I'm sure you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's spoken exactly, very much the same sense. Yeah. I do. I'm but glad. Well, I'm very pleased he's still alive and, and going strong. Oh, yes. Yeah. He gave us a very, gave us a fascinating hour. Just must round this off, um, Wendy, uh, famous people you've met. You had an, uh, you met Don Bradman a few times, didn't you? I did. I did, mm. yes, because um, he lived in Adelaide. So he, when the Adelaide test was on, he was always there. And at Adelaide, one, one time I I had been rushing. And up, I don't know if you know Adelaide is a very dusty place, because especially mm. in the summer, you get these hot winds bring the sand in from the great sandy desert. And um, I had been rushing. That behind the Hilton Hotel, there was a covered market, and I'd been fetching things for lunch and stuff like that. And as I came back into the Hilton foyer, I just collapsed. And there was a Qantas crew checking in, and they dashed over and said, don't, don't, this was online, don't panic, you're having an asthma attack, which, of course, is something I'd never mm -hmm. had before. And thankfully, Touchwood never had one since. And so I had to go to hospital, and I, I didn't score that day. Oh. <laughs> Richie and Rod Marsh, between them, tried to do it. That's what I mean yeah. about cricket, basically, dance, but they made such a mess of it. But they tried, bless them. But they, they didn't do very well. <laughs> I, bet the, I bet the book was in a terrible state when they handed it over. Well, that was the first time that I met the Don. Was, um, you know, I was sitting outside that, where they were having their lunch. And, and Bobby Simpson introduced me to him. And then later in the game, they was, they're very fond in, in Australia of having these breakfasts where they have um, speakers, you know, the kind of fundraising. Instead of having a dinner, they have a breakfast. And fundraising the same thing, and then they have a speaker, and, and he was there, and so I got him to sign a copy of his memoirs, and just on, we went down to the ground in a little minibus, so it was just I was sitting talking to him just those sort of five ten minutes between the Hilton and the cricket ground, so, and he was very very interested to yeah, yeah, how I'd begun rather sort of humble roots, rather like he had started as a, as a cricketer, very humble roots in the country. You know, that's a famous thing that everybody knows, hitting the 
cricket ball against the, the tank with a, with a stick of wood, you know, so, and being able to, it would come up at all sorts of strange angles, and that was why he was such a good batsman. Indeed. Um, Fantastic, yeah. yeah. I'd like to move on to the history of scoring and the nature of scoring itself. Mm. Um, we had a fascinating conversation with John McKenzie, uh, the bookseller. The, the book I mean, dealer, yes, yes. Indeed, and perhaps now too, probably now too, um, who showed us, Peter and I, and he showed us a, a, an edition of Britcher's cricket scores from 1799. I just wondered if you'd ever handled a, a Britcher's or come across one. Well, I haven't, no, but, but I have got the pic, the famous picture of the man with the, the, the stick they used to use with the notches in. Uh, in mm. my office, I've got, that, that's a very famous picture of this chap, sort of in Regency dress, I think you'd say, probably. You know, the sort of coat yeah. with a, which flares out and mm. with the britches on, and, and he's got this, where, where they used to keep the runs by doing these sort of notches in the stick. Mm. Frankly, I never had to do that, but... <laughs> it lasted a long time, that method, didn't it? And it was well, just yeah, a case of, yeah. uh, you know, of cutting, literally... Yeah, you know, picking up picking up a stick yeah. and um, and cutting a notch in it for and then well you do something of... and then one across would would come to ten you know you've got mm. and then you, it goes into tens and and like that but I mean when yeah. I was a little girl I used to score with different coloured pens pencils mm. which I I thought I'd invented but I I never heard of anybody doing it before or since really I just used to think if I did different you know blue for so and so and red for so and so and green for somebody else. And then people would say to me, how, how many runs? And you could see. The only trouble with the green and white ordinary book is that you you don't, um, it would be very hard to reconstruct an innings because you, you only put in, in the column next to the batsman, one, two, three, or four, six. You don't put the dots as well. And that, so you've got to think when the little squares at the bottom in the bowler's part, did the person doing the scoring, you know, like do one, two going right, then three and four, in the second line and five and six, or did he go one, two, three down and then four, five, six down? That's why it's very hard to 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 reconstruct an innings from those old books. Did you go across, Wendy, in the bowler's analysis or down? I, I can't remember now. I don't remember how I did <laughs> But I would have thought you would do one, two, three down and then four, five, six. But it, yeah. I mean, either way is sensible, really, when you stop to think about it. I mean, the only thing is common is that you join the. If it was a maiden over, you joined the dots into an M, and if it's a wicket, you maiden, you you did W up the other way. Yes, yeah. you get you still get exhortations on the cricket field, don't you? Bowler bowls, you yeah. know, four or five dot yeah. balls. Join the dots. Something yeah. say. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know if at the level at which Roger and I play, it's sometimes a nightmare for the scorer. When bowlers bowl a lot of wides and no balls, There's, you run out of space in the little square, don't you? That's why yeah. the linear way of doing it is much better, because you can take two or three lines for each over if you feel like. Because mm. you've got two columns, one for each batsman, so you you know you one two three shots, and then he takes a single off the fourth ball. Then you go into the other column for the other batsman, and if it's a wide, you know you've got really yes. straight away to start putting it, and then you come back to the other side. But like I say, you can get, then go into the second. You can take two complete lines for an overview mm-hmm. if, if the bowl is particularly profligate. Wendy, the I think the it's fair to say the tempo of cricket has has increased in in recent years, not just in one day cricket, but in long form cricket as well. And there are fewer dot balls. 
aren't they? Yes. Um, do you think that's made life harder for scorers generally? Simply, simply keeping up with it, with everything that's I going on. So, no, but I mean, it's just tedious, isn't it? You know, who wants oh. to watch a game where every ball is hit for four or six? That, that's not. That isn't cricket. That's more like baseball. The whole point of cricket, well, and, and I can, you know, remember when I said to you how enchanted I was the very first mm. people move here and because I wouldn't have realised when I was 11 that they're moving because the other batsman is right or left-handed or the, you know, or that he's just hit three fours over there, so I think you'd better move a field. You know, it's this kind of tactical thinking and that's why you're so disappointed when India, who, who really took on board this sort of chess aspect of cricket, became so besotted with one-day cricket to the detriment of every other country, I might say, it's cricket. Because, you know, their, their league sort of governs it. You know, they can pick players from here, then. So you then have New Zealand arrive here without their captain, for instance. And, and this kind of thing, it's, it's a disgrace. And I, I mean, I'm just glad I've retired. Because I wouldn't want to watch all these great 2020. And the, don't get me started on the 100, for goodness sake. It's just not, it's not cricket. It is not cricket. They, they brought in the Gillette Cup in 1963. This was going to bring new people to cricket. It doesn't. It brings people to a certain form of cricket. The Sunday League in 1969 was supposed to do a similar thing. You suddenly got 40 overs, which is a sort of okay game, but the best of the short game is the 50 over game, or 55, which was the Benson Hedges. Um, and then now the 50 overs. At least you've got time to build an innings. You've got, I mean, the bowler bowls four overs. And it's sort of people say, oh, you know, that's really good figures for four hours. Only 42 runs off. You think, what the hell? You know, if you bowl four hours and 42 in another, another game, you'd think that's a pretty shoddy piece of bowling, wouldn't you? <laughs> it does allow cricketers to make a great deal more money than they used to, though. Well, <laughs> if that's what they want to play cricket for, you know, let, let them go and do it. You know. But if it's to the detriment of other forms of cricket, and the way that the championship is stuffed at either end of the of the season, where the first, you know, it's it's um, you've still got a bit of chill in the air, and then in, in the end, you can't can hardly see what you're doing by the end of the day, and it's almost like they don't give a stuff about producing cricketers. And then then you know then when England are out for ninety six or something, everybody goes, oh that's a, you know because they haven't been encouraged to. I mean, to play like Evan. In, in fairness, though, Wendy, England have been playing some very good test cricket, haven't they, recently? Well, they, look, they've got away with it, Roger. They've got away with it because once or twice they have not got away with it. And, um, <laughs> you know, I want somebody who can go up there. And if he's only got 27 by lunchtime, good news, because it means that there's a solid foundation being laid and <sighs> then you can get your stroke players to come in. You know, I don't want to see people thrashing the ball from the minute they arrive it's just it simply is not cricket wonder if we've had a lot of discussion about um <laughs> the nat- about um 100 about the advent of about form about short form cricket in general uh, about the restructuring of the english season uh in recent podcasts so um sort of add that to the list i'd just like to add one more thing discussion I think I'm right in saying, Wendy, that the basic scorebook hasn't changed very much for really about a hundred, well, 150 years or so. But um, I don't. I've I've still got it. I used a scorebook in India that's got a lot of extra entries compared to the orthodox one, including a very well-filled section for dropped catches, 
<laughs> Uring Fieldsman and Unlucky Bowler. There's a special slot for them. Um, uh, and um, I used to have uh, the regular scorer in um, my social club, the Erratics, also used to editorialise a lot in his scoring. Um, you know, I've got some of his old books and they all say, I won't just say dismissal, but he'll add, you know, stupid shot or <laughs> did, 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 did the same thing last year. And I just wondered if there was anything, or just wondered, if first of all, if there's any feature you ever wanted to add to the scorebook, um, the, the regular scorebook. Well, I didn't really use those score books, you see. That's a, that's what I'm saying. that's the whole point. I didn't use those. Oh, of course. Once yeah. I became a professional scorer, I I I used the the linear system, which is is much better. And you've mm. got you've got a um, space for notes as well, where you can write down who dropped the catch, and if you feel like it, you could put stupid shot if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy, well, one, it was one of the joys of my life was going to the Cricket Writers Club annual lunch, which was uh, not a short event. But you worked, uh, did a lot of things for the Cricket Writers Club. Um, how was it? Well, I including organising that lunch, yes. Um, yeah. Well, as you know, dealing with a horde of journalists is always very tricky because they, um, they're so used to working to deadlines and, and they just more or less re refuse to be organised, shall we say. As you realise, as you know, a lot of journalists that they they're very um they don't sort of um, react kindly to being asked to do things by a certain time. Mm. <laughs> but uh, mm. I was the treasurer. I was elected treasurer in 1987 when the late Robin Marler was still the chairman of the Cricket Writers Club, and I I was proposed by Christopher Martin Jenkins, uh, and his proposal was um, his nomination read along the lines services to cricket writers. And I said, I think we want to change that because that could be misconstrued. <laughs> Going back to our earlier conversation. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so I was longest serving official of the Cricket Writers Club probably before or since, or, or ever will be, when you think 1987 to 2016 is a pretty long yeah. stint. Yeah. I was the treasurer and the assistant secretary. So, in other words, I did everything. Those those lunches, I mean, most cricket guys I know who go to that lunch basically take the entire day off. Yes. So, and, uh, and some of them need the next day to recover. And the next day too, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we used to have dinners, you see, but it became it got rather expensive because people would then have to, um, you know, have a hotel room as well. And, yeah. and if they wanted to, to, to natter on after, because after all, the, the lunch, is the only time a lot of them get together because you know you work with the Guardian and the Telegraph, and, but but then you might not be at the same cricket match. But so you want to see your fellow Guardian writers or your fellow Telegraph yeah. writers or whatever. And the only time you do that is is once a year at the lunch. It was hugely social, lovely, lovely event. I tell you what, they would rather have instead of the lunch or the dinner, they'd rather just have pints of beer and pork scratching, and so they could just stand around chattering and and you know catching up with each other. Have to sit down was a great inconvenience to quite a few authors. <laughs> Wendy, it's been absolutely it's been an absolute joy to talk to you and to hear about um, your wonderful career, your wonderful service to cricket, and many of the wonderful people you've met. Um, thank you very much for joining us, and um, it's goodbye for me, Richard Hammer. Yes, thank you very much, Wendy. It was absolutely fascinating, marvelous. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.